there's uh, perhaps some wisdom in not having kids in the service for the scripture reading with today's reading, but luckily it's just the preacher's kid, and he's just going to be messed up anyway, so nothing to do about that. Um, then also, you know, she belongs in a charismatic church, obviously, where it's a more accepted role on the floor during worship. <laughs> For a moment, I thought, I'm like, she's never seen this. She's worshiping. And then she rolled over and smiled at me, and I was like, now she's not. She's just being belligerent. Thanks be to God. Um, But that's all to say that we have a tough story before us today, the story from Leviticus 10. And it's not, um, there are all sorts of answers for why this is. There's all sorts of questions about what this is. But it's important for us to remember that, like, if you're reading the Bible and you come to these spots and you begin to really question the character of who God is, is is a church we'd love to walk through that with you. And some of them aren't as bad as they seem, and some of them don't have as obvious answers for why this is as they seem. Um, But to trust in the character of the one who's leading us and to know that the place we see this God most clearly is in Jesus Christ is to have a place to rest and reside in what can be confusing and difficult stories. And I say this all because the way I grew up and the way that I I read the Bible, it doesn't particularly present problems to me in a lot of ways. And I don't know why that is. I just assume God's smarter than I am. Um, God knows beyond what I know. God is more holy and unapproachable than what I would be able able to do. And even this idea, and people used to say this in our last church, is that when you get to heaven, won't it be nice that you'll understand everything, that all your questions will be answered? And I would always pose the question back, is that, like, is knowing why things are, does that always help you? Like, to know why um, uh, smoking leads to cancer, does that help you live with the fact that somebody you love has cancer? Like, it's not always the answers are the best thing. And so if, if heaven, in this phrase, is sort of like seems like a great question and answer period, I said, doesn't that seem a little flat? Like, that if I get there and I'm like, so really, what was the story with Aaron's sons? Is kind of to miss the point. Um, which is not to say that these aren't important things or challenges that we have when we read these stories, but I think it's important to keep in sight that communion and union this God who comes to us in Jesus Christ and offers his spirit is something deeper and maybe beyond even these bumps along the road. Now there's this phrase my friend used to talk about. He wrote a blog on the top 10 heresies in the church today, and he said, orthodoxy equals right praise, which is what orthodoxy means, right praise. And so that means heresy equals wrong praise in some ways. And then he had this asterisk next to it that says Leviticus 10 is an example of why wrong praise is a big deal. Two sons die. Now, there are people and there are times in church history when people are like, well, these are just the Old Testament God being the Old Testament God, and we really don't have to deal with that. And that's why I had David read that portion from the story of Ananias and Sapphira this morning, because they too also fall dead as they come before God with their offering and lie about selling it for the full price. So if you think, well, you know, at least we don't have to deal with this. This is in the Old Testament. I think the book of Acts, which is a great companion to the book of Leviticus in in many ways, and the way that the Spirit comes and the way the words come, and all these things sort of equal each other out. But um, 
you know, we have that in our story too. We can't just quite pun off. And it's a bad, I mean, the idea that there's a God of the Old Testament is, maybe I should confront that sometime. It's just bad theology and bad practice. And we shouldn't be doing that. There's one God revealed in three persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There is no God of the Old Testament. Um, but aside from that, I don't think it always solves all the problems we'd hope it would having a phrase or a mindset like that. Um, so that's to say that why we read that story is that it's difficult even in the, the New Testament. And in the words of Jesus, when he says, when you come to present your offering and you realize you offended somebody back in your hometown, you should go and make peace with them before you offer it there, is also high demand. It's to say you're in Jerusalem and you live 90, 100, 200 miles away, and if you realize somebody is offended there, you must go and make peace with them before you present their offering. I mean, if you live in Jerusalem, not so bad, but most of the people who came to Jerusalem came from the surrounding areas to offer these offerings. And then there's that, that particular line in the Corinthians where talking about communion, Paul suggests that, that those who eat of it unworthily eat their own own damnation. They, that, that causes them to be sick and ill and fall asleep. And if we want to talk about what's really going on in that passage, it's not as much about your moral integrity as it is about offending the entire community. But, you know, all these things still exist in the New Testament. But wrong praise and, and worship's weight is a big issue. As we see in Ananias and Sapphira, they're bringing forward their offering. That offering you're bringing forward um, in, in Jerusalem that Jesus is talking about, communion, all these things, is to say that in the Bible, worship has a weight to it. It has meaning to it. Now, the word for sort of God's glory in this Leviticus portion is one that connotates weight to it, that, that the glory that filled the temple is heavy. And so what to say is that when we gather for worship, right, whether Jews or as Christians, we deal with heavy things and things that matter and difficult things. We deal with the worship of the holy and infinite, all-encompassing love and light and life God in a world of death and often darkness and struggle and anger and angst and separation. And so to walk into that from what normally exists is not an easy challenge. So all of what we do in worship, and, and this is where it's like, well, the idea that sometimes people have is that, you know, well, I worship God out in nature. I worship God out in, which I think is right to see and praise God in the creation that he's made. But there's something about what happens in the book of Leviticus and what continues in the New Testament is the concentrated presence of sort of what happens with the holy amongst the gathered believers. I mean, you could even think of it this way. As we each bring our own um, seeking and desire to see this, the light of the fire grows larger. So if it's just me on a mountaintop, that would be a little light. But if I were to come into a place of worship with many Christians and to combine those, that, that, that holiness would be magnified. That that would be sort of the, the, the point of, of this story and the ways in which we come and the way in which we deal with these weighty things. And so we're going to walk through the story real fast, and then I'm going to offer two, which will sound like four. I mean, this is, this is hard because there's points within the points. But uh, this, hey, that's the first honest speaker you've probably ever heard. <laughs> and I'm going to offer two observations, which has multiple points, subpoints. Um, if you're outlining it, we'll all the way to like dot A minus, like uh, probably not, but just to be fair. 
Um, my hope is we'll walk through the story, depending on our time, I'll have two observations sort of to pull from the story, one sort of distant um, and one sort of closer. Um, but we'll start with the story is that uh, last time in, in nine, it, there was, they had this eighth day worship service and God's glory came and filled the temple and everybody fell down and sort of worshiped. Now it's hard to say whether this was just terrifying for everyone or whether this was like, the spirit of the Lord is here, let us, like my daughter, roll and be amazed by who God is. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not clear what the people are feeling at this moment, but it seems like it's this holy awe combined with this holy terror. If you've been following through the book of Exodus and, and um, Leviticus now, that when God shows up, they're both overwhelmed with this beauty and this truth that has resided amongst them and absolutely terrified on the ways in which it appears and comes, which I think would be our, our story as well. And so they've had this thing finally show up to them. And the crazy part about this, the Leviticus 10 story, is it happens the same day. The same day this happens, the story of sort of like infringing upon that. And God, um, uh, this, uh, I was like, ah, oh, this is too much, this image. Uh, but this is what happens is the two sons are burned. Um, and so... We have this happen the same day, but it shouldn't be quite that shocking to us because this is a nature of sort of a biblical pattern. God creates seven days, and there were seven days of waiting for the Spirit to descend. And then on the eighth day, humanity comes and, and ruins it, commits an act of decreation. And then after that, God re-renews it. Or when we were going through the book of Exodus, there was this scene in which they all agreed to be the people of this God. Um, to have him reside amongst them. And then Moses goes away for a little bit, and then they make for themselves a calf to worship. And God comes back, and there, there's difficulty there, but God also, in, in chapter 35, renews that covenant, renews that life. So too, in, in the book of Acts, you can see this. You know, things are going pretty well up until this Ananias and Sapphira thing. And even after that, God's Spirit continues to do work throughout the believers. And so that pattern is followed here when we get to that later portion where, where God speaks directly to Aaron, which is the only time that God speaks directly to Aaron in the book of Leviticus. Uh, it's not a lot in the Torah at all that he speaks to him, but, but that's the second or the only time in this book, in the book of Leviticus, he speaks and redirects what they're supposed to be doing. So this pattern of God's good creation, God coming and residing, God being with his people, humanity fumbling that, messing it up, um, distorting it, God coming and renewing is, is pretty consistent. It shouldn't surprise us that it happens on the eighth day all over again. And it shouldn't surprise us when it goes that way for us. I mean, has anybody ever come back from like a Promise Keepers conference or conference of some sort? And you're like, I will never... Um, if it's promise keepers, ignore my children again. Or you come back from a, a, camp, uh, a, a conference in college and you're like, you know, I'm going to be recommitted to, to not hanging out with those girls, not doing that thing, not drinking that way. And then the day you get back, the challenge presents itself all over again and you've, you fall and you fail. Um, it's almost like that that's sort of built in. That, that I think maybe human arrogance goes along with it, is it's come, it's here, I'm fine, and then right at that moment, it's easy to fall. So it shouldn't surprise us as much that it happens here in this book. But what happens is Aaron's sons, and it's very hard to tell, I mean, this is the, the problem with reading too many commentaries, which I'm 
apt to do is that there are lots of answers for why this might happen. But Aaron's sons get creative. And I think, Jamie, in your translation, it said they bring a foreign fire or some other fire to the altar of the Lord, thinking that this will please God. What happens is, is then they are consumed by fire that comes out of either from, from the, the Ark of the Covenant or from within themselves or from the fire that they're burning. It's hard to say where the fire comes from, but they're consumed by this fire and they die. And it's like this pattern of if you offend with fire, you're punished with fire. And so they, they come forward and they offend with fire. Now, what, what they did wrong is very hard to say. The, the one rabbi came up with 12 things that they might have done wrong. And, and there's this idea of like, well, they did it at the wrong time. They had jumped ahead uh, to, to maybe create something for themselves. They did it for the wrong reasons. They wanted to show up Moses or Aaron by doing something greater. Um, they were wearing the wrong clothes, <laughs> which is we saw in the last section. They had very particular ways they were supposed to dress. Um, they had done it uh, with the wrong attitude. They had done it for themselves. Um, later, this, this notion when the Lord speaks to Aaron again and says, don't be drunk. There's this idea that, particularly popular among rabbis and Christian interpreters, that those two being that close together suggests that maybe they were drunk uh, on some sort of feast thing when they came in, and that was the problem. There's all sorts of things that might have caused this. And yet there are some rabbis that say that they die sort of in their righteousness, even as they are consumed by this fire. In the sense of which they are called out among the people to be priests. This warning that Moses gives afterwards, among those who preach me, I will be proved holy, is that already in their character and who they are, they have this righteousness that allows them to approach God. And so in their error, which they do err, they're still within their righteousness of being those who come that close. This moment in, in Israel's history, not everybody's allowed halfway this close, but even this close. And so they come sort of within their own sort of righteousness and goodness to this moment. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but, but there's this idea in which we don't quite understand what they're doing, but the, the one that I think brings the most out is that they perhaps had brought private incense, their own sort of incense from home. And this is particularly in Exodus, it says that no foreign incense should sort of be presented. This is particularly worrisome for Israel because there's this idea that this is the easiest thing to sort of fall into idolatry with. Doesn't We can't assume that they were, but the idea of you would bring your own sort of incense is, is what Israel would be doing is lighting little tikis to other gods at various times. And it doesn't seem like that big of idolatry, right? It's just a little bit, and maybe they worship this God who's really good with the harvest. My harvest is short. I'll still do the sin sacrifice, but let me just light something to see if I can appease this at the same time. Just bad. But more so it's bad if you bring that into the temple. And so maybe already after the start, they had sort of, in their zealotry, sort of brought their private incest, whether for their own name, or they had brought it um, to add to what God was doing. It clearly violates something of what God has planned. It clearly violates the character of what's going on here. Almost so that these sacrifices are for the people. So when it comes about you, it's not for the people anymore. Nobody worries about this with preachers anymore. We just aren't that charismatic. They worry about it with worship leaders for some reason. You know, worship leaders have to always be clear that they're doing it for the people and not for themselves, whereas we're pastors, we're just too bland to have that concern nowadays. Um, 
not <laughs> Brian's laughing like it's true. Um, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess we. I mean, sin sin knows all shapes, which is the funny thing about that is that type of self examination is not exempt from anyone. Um, we put it on the people up front, which maybe has some point, but like really, there are so many things in our lives that are important to have that sort of self examination around, which is. Am I doing this for the Lord? Particularly around worship, I think, is an important spot for that. Um, but what happens is they do that, and then Moses offered these words about, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all people, I will be honored. Now, Moses says this to Aaron, like, we've heard this before. And the, the hard part is we have it, it, it most likely had been spoken to Moses and Aaron. Um, maybe Moses had spoken it to the people. But it's nowhere in Leviticus or Exodus or Genesis up until this point. So it's an odd point to make. But he's saying that among the people who approach God will be proved holy. That God's holiness will be among those who approach him. This is a, a challenging word for us as Christians. It's that as we approach in confidence Jesus, the character of God, do we do it in such a way that God might be proved holy? beyond. And Aaron remains silent here. Now Moses summons the, his two other sons, and he says to them, come carry here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the sanctuary. And so they carried them away, and this is, this is a funny line, still in their tunics, which suggests that they were burned of their flesh, but not of the holy things that God had sort of prepared for them. They were still in their clothes is how they carry them out. They're, they're carried out wearing what they had been wearing. Which both can lead to both sides of that. Were they just guilty, not great people, or were they set apart people who make an error? You know, their their clothes are still intact. They still have that honor. Could be one that they are charred up, and even they're like it was such a violent burning. Could go either way. But I think that the point is, is that they still remain this holy thing that God has called to them. And they're carried outside the camp. And then what he says, and this is one of the harshest parts of the passage, is he denies to Aaron and these two sons that remain the rites of mourning. He says that you guys can't mourn in this space and at this time. He's very clear that the people of Israel, the people outside the Holy of Holies, will have a great mourning for them. They'll mourn for them, but you guys are you guys can't mourn for them. This was challenging as I thought about it, because it's a very difficult thing, and it comes up a little bit later in the story. Um, but it seems like there are two observations you could make about this. One is that this light in life of holiness is life. And to make yourself disheveled, to wear the marks of mourning in there, is to bring death into the place where life is supposed to reign. So outside the camp, outside the, the, this, the sanctuary, mourning is entirely appropriate. Because there in that world, it seems like death has ruled. The proper response of anybody called by God is to mourn when that ugly face shows up. But amongst the worship, amongst the place where life resigns, to bring death into it is, is part of the reason to bring something unclean, to pass in that moment. So they're sort of being denied the right to mourn, not because it would be wrong, but because this is the place in which life resides. 
so many of the things as we move to the next chapters that are associated with becoming unclean are associated with death. Which is good news for us that God is so radiant on the side of life. God is so focused on the side of life. And so his sons, they're denied this, perhaps because it would be to bring death into the camp, to bring death near that. And so he tells them that they, they're not to mourn there. And then comes this passage where the Lord speaks to Moses again. Well, the second thing to say about that passage is that also their lives as priests will be continually interrupted by death and mourning. And to do their work, they need to be a people who death and mourning, as they focus and attend to life for the sake of Israel, death and mourning cannot be interruptions to that. And so as we think about our lives as Christians, as we bring our lives of praise, is that death and mourning will always be things in which we will do outside of the camp. And yet we need to keep in focus that what we're attentive to and what we're drawn to and who God is, is actually life and life that is full and life that is beyond. Death and mourning will always want the interruption. There are times at which they should be. And yet there is also the greater news that life resides in who God is. And so that's part of the reason why they're not called to mourn. Then the Lord says to Aaron, and he says that you are not to drink wine or other fermented drink or to go in the tent of meaning or you will die. And this is, might be related to what just happened. And then he says, this is the lasting ordinations for generation to come, so that you may distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so that you can teach the Israelites all the decrees God has given them. We'll talk about that at the end. I don't want to talk about it twice. Um, but, but let that stick with you. Then Moses gives more instructions again to the people about how to offer sacrifices. But what happens at the end is he inquires about why haven't you consumed the go offering? Why haven't you done what was commanded? Especially because to consume this is to bear away the sins of the people. The priest eating some of this offering is actually the symbol by which the sin was transferred to the animal, which we talked about in the other offerings, and then the priest eats some of it, not of his own sin, but of the sins of the people, to sort of show that this is its being bared away. The Lamb of God comes to bear away the sins of the world, is where we see this in the New Testament, is that there is this bearing away of sins that God does for us. That, that in the pollution, as we talked about, sin can be a metaphor for, in the pollution that we create, God bears away that so that we can approach God and holiness. And so he's asking, why haven't they done that? Now, Aaron's answer could be interpreted lots of different ways, which is like the moral of the story, I guess. I've said it many times. Um, but I think the clearest way in which you can interpret it is to say that he's saying is that for us to take part of what he's identifying with his sons and that this is my sin as well, right? The sin offering that we have today is the sin of those gathered in the holy. And so when he sins, and we'll remember this from, from last time, when the priest sins, he doesn't get to eat any of the meat. If you're a hungry priest, you can keep on sinning and eating meat. Um, like, they burn the whole thing. And so his point being is, as I identify with what happened here today, 
in this place with my sons? Does it not seem fit that we would burn the whole thing instead of to eat of it? Would God be pleased with that? And then these are the most wonderful parts of, of our, our scriptures. And it says Moses agreed. It was pleasing to Moses. People win arguments with the people that, that we're called to. It's just an amazing thing that Moses is corrected here. And he agrees that that is a right thing to do. But the other thing that becomes clear is that this working out of salvation and holiness, when we looked at it from the first, when the burning story, where the sons died, it seems very rigid, right? There's only one way to do this. And perhaps in worship, um, as, as you bring sort of these things into the temple and tabernacle, there's an order to it that shouldn't be cut off, right? And yet, when it comes to us working out our salvation with fear and trembling, God allows for the space of discernment. And I think it's easy to see the difference between sort of the two things. The one clearly was this attempt to sort of bring something more, to get cute, to get smart with what had been happening there, to bring attention or even to please God more than God could be pleased. Um, like, God's really going to be wowed by this one. That, too, also might be a mistake. But in the second instance, you're seeing sort of this mourning working out in which how am I to live as holy before this God? And those two tensions, I think, are right for us to have, is that God is concerned about your individual. I mean, there, the number of times in which as a pastor you sit with people and you know some of their neurosis, in which you don't challenge these deep-held beliefs because it gives them barriers and lines in which to exist and live their holiness. But again, it wouldn't be something I'd say to everyone. And yet at the same time, when it's common, when it's meant to be our worship together, when it's meant to be for God, it becomes clear that there's a way in which we can distract and pull away and distort that. And so today's story ends with Moses Green, and we'll move forward into what is the holiness code next. We've done the offerings and the priestly instructions, and then we'll do the holiest code next. So do I do two points or one point? I'll try to do the first one short. I'm reading a, a commentary that's attempting to be very Christological in its interpretation of all of this. That phrase at the top of the bulletin, for you have prepared for me a body, this person writing is trying to take very seriously that what's happening in the book of Leviticus, all of these instructions, are fulfilled in the body of Jesus Christ. All of them are encapsulated in his body, for a body you've prepared for. And I've been reading this one, and it's probably been the one that's been filling me the most. But it's also been the hardest one to preach from. And so I, I tried to a little bit last Sunday, and we'll, I'll try to bring it in more, because I think if it's filling me a lot, perhaps it will fill you a lot. But perhaps my skills at summarizing and bringing this out to you are not as strong as they should be. So we'll try to keep these ones short, um, and we have, we'll, have, we'll have easier application after this, if that's what you want to call this part of the sermon. But the one thing it seems to be saying in this story is that sin and destruction are bound with goodness. That to see sin and destruction is to also know goodness. To see light is to also know that there's darkness. And that these things are intertwined. And what happens is that, that this sort of sin and destruction and goodness thing burrows in our hearts so that then we can discern the difference. That these things are clearly seen within us. 
Now, one of the things this commentator, I think, is pulling out that's very deeply meaningful for me about this, what's happening with the priests, is that they're going into the temple, and what becomes very clear to them is they're also seeing their destruction. They're also seeing everything that's wrong. They're also seeing the own unsinf- the, the sinful and fake patterns of the world. It's so much more that you can't go here without weeping because it brings you into this place of, of sort of knowing all that's fading, all that's corrupt, all that's darkness when you reside in this light. And so what he draws out is this phrase, Eche Omo. Now, I was in, they didn't have YouTube when I was in college, but for some reason, I watched the Passion of the Christ trailer like a hundred times. Um, and there are almost no words in the Passion of the Christ trailer, except for this phrase from Pilate, which is Ecce Homo. Um, Latin, because Mel Gibson is Catholic, and so he uses Latin for this. But it, it sort of means, behold the man. And the medieval theologians really took seriously this idea of, like, you should behold the face of Christ. You should look at it. You should see it. And what happens when you look at the face of Christ, it's an image that is the the face of God and will encourage us even now to turn our eyes. In turning, we come complicit in the very crimes that discomfort us. To behold Jesus crucified on the cross, to look at the face of Christ, is to not just see goodness and truth, but also to behold, to see the very crimes that discomfort us. It's supposed to be a dual revealing, right? It reveals what is true and good and holy as priests enter the temple. And what it does when you see something like that is it reveals your own complicitness in why Jesus gets crucified. It reveals what's happening there. And so this is the tension of the book of Leviticus and the tension of the Christian life is to sort of be able to look upon that which shows your own evil and destruction. Because it's good. It will renew you. That spirit will come into your heart and help you discern. But deny that is to make it impossible. And so that's the challenge of the book that that maybe isn't that helpful. Um, Here's the second portion. And we talked about this last Sunday, and because this is our last Sunday on the priesthood, I thought it'd be good to hear it again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are a priesthood. We are a holy nation, is what Peter is telling us. And it's this covenant that they originally agreed to in Leviticus that's being renewed for the church, that we are to be these people. And so as you come... um, we, we, we are this thing. And so as I've been walking through the book here, one of the challenges has been for me is like, well, I am in some sense a priest for this community, which I hate thinking because as a Protestant, you know that's not true. And it reminds me of when I was going to my ordination. They asked me, what, what question do you have? And I said, what am I agreeing to in my ordination that I didn't already agree to in my baptism? I never got a good answer to the question, but what it means is that in our baptism we agree to teach and to confess, to help the poor, to to bring God into the world, to be agents of light and healing and all this. And and so in that way, we are all the priesthood. And so for me to get ordained, what exactly in our tradition am I getting? In a Protestant tradition, what are you getting that you didn't already agree to in your baptism? 
I mean, in, in some Protestant traditions, it'd be like, well, you can do communion. Well, that's not ours. So what, what am I getting? And they never really had a good answer. They're like, well, they're notifying your gifts. They're, they're calling you out as one gifted to lead. And I was like, that's fine, but maybe we should use a different word than ordination then. And because that implies some sort of different status, different level. And so this is my story, but because I told it that way, now it's your story. What could you agree to that isn't included in your baptism as one who's a member of the royal priesthood of God? There's no extra level of Christianity after baptism in our tradition. That's the, that's the truth we teach when we proclaim the priesthood of all believers. And so these two things that Aaron's called to that I kind of left off, I think are very important. I'll put this up. I don't know if I'll talk about it that much. But he's called, they're called to both help discern between the sacred and the common, the impure and impure. Your translation may have different words, uh, profane and holy, uh, so holy in the place of the sacred and profane and common, pure and unclean in the bottom, clean and unclean in the bottom block. And it's a, it's a fascinating graphic the way this is put up, because what is common can be pure. You can become impure. So the common are the people outside of the priesthood, right? What is common can be pure. You take a bath. Is generally what you do, which is, as Christians, this is an amazing thing, because our bath is our baptism. And so as we are, in some sense, sacred and common, this combination is that, like, when we become impure, what do we do? We go back to our baptism. We go back to the truth that we're adopted in who God has been for us and who it is. And so the pure um, can only be sacred or common, but it can't be impure. Um, and so there's this, there's this weird sort of tension here. But I think what this names is perhaps one of the greatest challenges of the Christian life is to discern between what is holy and common, clean and unclean. There's a word you could use in place of this, which is secular, which means to be able to discern what's not a product of the age. It's incredibly difficult. I mean, this, I say, it's a very challenging thing to think that if you could know if you viewed your life, it's discerning between what's sacred and common, pure and impure. You would actually be moving yourself in the project of holiness in ways in which you couldn't imagine. To be able to see that, to be able to name that, to be able to help people know that. Now Martin Luther has this phrase, he says, the greatest art is to know the difference between law and gospel. And it's, it's easy to see sort of in this graph is that law can make you common, but gospel can make you sacred. And so for us to be able to discern and see in the world the ways in which these things defile, I mean, to narrate the world in that way. Like, and I rarely do this, so forgive me, but as like a challenge for this week, if you look at the news and the things that people say in your sphere and just think, holy Common, pure, impure. Like, to actually just sort of do that, because what it would do is place you in this, in this sort of cosmic realm in which things have way more meaning than we think they do, and you're actually engaged in a project way beyond what you are. This is what comes with being that priesthood that's taken out of darkness and brought into light. It's all of us. And the last thing is, is so that you can teach this, Jesus ends his teaching um, 
the great, the great Commission. And he says, command them to teach all that I've taught you. Now, in ancient Near Eastern societies, it was common that the priests would have unique knowledge and that the people would just trust them with that knowledge. And they may come up with new revelations. This revolution that's happening here in ancient Israel is that the priests have no unique knowledge and they didn't come up with them themselves. It was written by the hand of Moses, is what it says in the Hebrew. And they're to tell it to everyone, to all of the people of God. This too, I mean, these two things I think are amazing challenges for us. What does it mean to teach it to us here? Sacred, not sacred, common, uncommon, these things. And even more so, what does it mean to teach it in our places of work, in our daily lives, to our kids? to those near to us, to our neighbors. Like what happens with in the New Testament is Israelite comes to mean more expansive terms. And so Jesus says to teach it to all the nations. Like what does it mean to do that? I think it's, it's going to be awkward. <laughs> uh, it could potentially be painful, although we don't have like martyrdom in this country, but we do have like, find a new job. We don't like you. We wrote mean things about you online. All sorts of things that could happen. Um, you know, it could be painful, it could be life-giving, it could be transformative, it could be all these things, and yet these two things that are renewed for Aaron, this lasting ordinance, it's like sums up the whole thing. He says, we started eighth-day worship. We offend, and God renews. Is exactly what happened in this story. Somehow Aaron's sons have committed an offense and yet somehow God also renews his call for his people, which is the call for us gathered here as well. Let us pray. God, this is not an easy story. It calls us into questioning, how is this the God we worship? And yet when we look at it, we see the ways in which you are God on the side of life and not death. You are this God on the side of your people and not our individual shows. And you're God who is for us in ways we could never imagine. And so to today we hear the call, the call renewed to Aaron and his sons and to the priesthood and therefore to all of us. To do people who can see the world as sacred can see the world as profane, to know the difference, to see what is pure, to see what is impure, to see what is clean, to see what is unclean. And for that to invite us into a realm of meaning-making and life-giving that allows us to move closer and closer into your light and life. May these words be near to us. May they draw us deeper into what you have for us. And may we teach and profess them among the nations. God be with us now and always. Amen.
Thank you.